Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. But let's jump into uh, the text this morning. We're in Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 21. So we're about halfway through that gauntlet about salvation that we are uh, going through right now in Romans. So it says this, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith uh, says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is one that we should definitely say amen to. Verse 14, how then uh, will they call upon whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in the one that they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah uh, is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord. So this middle section of scripture, we could easily call it uh, the anatomy of salvation, the section found between chapter 9 and 11. These three chapters weave together really important topics like election and, and human responsibility, they, they weave together God's sovereign will and prayer and, and the need to evangelize and the need to preach, which if you notice are normally topics that we don't necessarily weave together ourselves. Yet Paul connects these ideas with no hesitation or, or even, uh, even slight bit of hesitation here. What I've tried to keep in front of us the last couple of weeks is these chapters 9 through 11, they're, they're meant to go together and they're meant to be read together. Like they're not three random chapters that they're just kind of thrown there and they're not connected to each other. They're connected, they're coherent, they're intentional teachings that are meant to go exactly where they are for a reason. So historically, uh, people will read nine by itself and that alone, maybe if they're more Calvinistic or reformed or more high on the sovereignty of God and they'll just kind of stop there. Or historically, people may only read chapter 10 if they lean more Arminian or, or free will or something like that, and maybe they won't read chapter 9. But the idea that Paul wants us, us to understand is these are not meant to be separate sections. We're not meant to read the one that we like the best and then leave the other one out. We're meant to lean into the tension and know that they go together and read them together and understand them together. 
Paul is on purpose linking the sovereignty of God with human responsibility here. <clears throat> what we've wanted to show in these last weeks is those things are not in opposition to each other. He's championing the idea that God can elect and he can have a sovereign will and that you and I can still need to act. God can do that and we can still need to do things. Though these things may be uh, something that seems like a contradiction in our minds, God works in, in this type of way. Uh, and, and even if it's surprising to us or we struggle to reconcile why God may do this or how it all works, it doesn't mean that he doesn't. This is kind of part of what faith practically looks like, believing in what you can't fully see or understand or know. And this is also what submission looks like and trust looks like in faith. We submit to the God who works things out outside of our complete understanding and maybe outside of our complete comfort. We don't force the God of the universe to operate inside of the spectrum that we feel comfortable with alone. We trust him, even if we don't see the whole picture, even if we don't understand the whole picture, we don't know that all things make sense, but we trust him. The world may call this like blind foolishness, but we, we can call it faith. We believe in a father who is good, even if we don't understand all the ways that he works perfectly. So since these sections are meant to go together, we'll do the really quick rehash in them. Chapter 9 is where Paul shared with us the reality of God's election throughout all of history. And, and here's the kind of tagline that we tried to set in. Election isn't the act of God to reject some who would otherwise come to him. He's not keeping willing participants out of the kingdom of God. Election is the act to choose someone who otherwise would not choose God. This is the clear and consistent message throughout scriptures. You and I, because of sin, because of our brokenness, we would not choose God. We would choose ourselves. We would choose our comforts. We would choose our ways, the cultural ways, but we would not and cannot choose God. So the Bible, when it references election, is referencing the way that God sovereignly makes the first move towards us because we would never make a move towards him on our own. He's not keeping innocent people out. He's drawing people who would never come to him in. And we've, um, it's referencing an election to the undeserved mercy that some get, not because of skills, not because of their good works, not because of their family line. It is only because of grace. The, the way I think about this is election is how God makes dry bones turn into hearts of flesh. God makes the first move because we could never do it. How do the inner workings and all of it work? I don't really know, and I, th I think, to be honest, that that'll be something that on the other side of eternity we'll get a clue into, because now we see kind of through a mirror dimly. We just know God makes the first move because we would not be able to. As chapter 10 opened up, though, he did what seemed like the contradiction that we talked about last week. He says of Israel, the ones that he'd been praying for, his, his brothers and sisters, he's, he's lamenting that they're not all going to come to faith. There's going to be quite a few of them uh, that, that, that are not going to follow Jesus. These are the hard-headed ones, the hard-hearted ones. He's been praying for them all, that God would save them all, knowing that they won't all actually be saved. And this seems kind of odd, like an act of redundancy. If God elects, our minds tend to think, well, why would we pray for people to be saved if, if salvation is kind of the work of the Lord? Why spend time praying for what God has, before the foundations of the world, elect to, to do or not to do? But Paul never had this mindset. He doesn't pit prayer against election. He actually puts them together on purpose. Over and over, Paul champions the sovereign will of God. God has a sovereign will, and he still champions calling believers to pray and pray without ceasing, pray regularly. 
So Paul shows us prayer is not useless because God has a sovereign will. Prayer is how God has chosen for his sovereign will to be accomplished much of the time. Uh, The wording that I hope gets ingrained in our heart from last week is prayer is the means. It's the way that God regularly carries out his sovereign will. How does he link all of that together? I'm not completely sure, but it's the way that he links his uh, sovereign will to what happens is through our prayer. God decides to involve us in the accomplishment and the unfolding of his will by calling us to pray. The human responsibility is to pray. It's how God has designed things to work. Um, This led us down a long path of prayer last week, realizing there is a beauty God wants to bring us in and through. And the beauty that we want to see of people getting saved and and darkness getting pushed back is going to require us to, to pray to see it come about. See, we get stuck wondering, why do I pray if God's in control? And what I want to do is just shift us this way and say, the better way to think of it is the God who is in control has told us to pray. Not why do we pray if he's in control. The God who's in control has asked us to pray without ceasing to see the beauty of his hand come about, darkness pushed back, people saved. This is what the Bible talks about, seeing mountains moved, which is uh, meaning to see the impossible, the things that you never thought could happen. We're called to see those things happen through prayer and the work of the Spirit in the life of the church and what we do. Now, we've seen Paul talk about election and prayer so far in chapter 9 and in chapter 10. In this week's text, this is where he's going to add to it again. He's going to add confession and believing with your heart to uh, hearing and preaching, which rounds out what I've called the anatomy of salvation. There's four parts that he gives to us here, and they go like this. The first part of the anatomy of salvation is, is the election of God the Father. This is first in your, your kind of mathematical order of operations. This comes first. And the second is burden and prayer for believers. This is what we covered last week. We're burdened to see other people get saved, so we pray for their salvation. The third is hearing of Jesus and the gospel through preaching. And the fourth is the hearer confessing and believing in Jesus. Four very simple parts that he rolls out in front of us. As we try to understand and balance, again, God's election and his sovereign will with our human responsibility, I think this anatomy of salvation breakdown helps us a little bit because we can visualize in those steps, election, part one, that's God's work. But we're called to be a part of step two, three, and four. We must do those things in order to see salvation actually carried out. Now, this doesn't mean we as the clay, uh, that the creation of God actually become in charge of all things in salvation. It just goes to show that there are things that we must do in order to see salvation come about. Understanding this is how we stay away from the, the, the gutters on the side of the road that we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's how we stay out of hyper-Calvinistic mindsets. The hyper-Calvinist thinks or lives like, I don't actually hear many people say it, they may just live like it, that because God sovereignly elects, that believers can sit back and just kind of not do anything and, and let God's handiwork unfold Uh, But that can't be how we live. God has designed it where believers get to and must participate in the redeeming work of God. As this text unfolds, we see Paul declare to us, uh, without believers doing some things, people won't get saved. Like we need to hold that intention. God has a sovereign will, but Paul's going to clearly say, hey, if we don't go do these other things and the responsibility that we are given, we're not going to see people come to, to faith. 
we get to participate in the redeeming work. So yes, God is sovereign. And yes, we also have stuff to do. We can say both of those and I think it's okay. So as the text kind of moves forward and unfolds, my hope for us is this. Obviously, we're going to talk about uh, confession, but we're also going to talk about evangelism. The hope at the the beginning side of it is that this wouldn't really feel like a burden to you, uh, but that more so uh, we would kind of be stirred deep in our soul for the beauty of seeing God's work unfold. I don't want to walk away with, man, I've got to evangelize more and I've got to do this. And I've got to add this to the margins of my life. The hope is that we'll be stirred to the miracle of salvation and that we'll honor, obey, pray, and declare and herald Jesus and just see some really neat things happen. What if we were in awe of the miracle of salvation instead of felt shamed or duty-bound to evangelize or tell about Jesus? That's, that's kind of the hope. So at the beginning of the text, Paul was doubling back to remember Israel. Again, his people... They had been trying to earn salvation through obedience. They thought if we did the things of the law, then we're good, then we're in, ignoring the fact that God sent Jesus to save, not the law to save. And Paul says in verse 5, yes, it's true. If you could perfectly obey the law, like if you could nail it 100% of the time, you would be saved, but you can't actually do that. He's showing them that their efforts to save themselves through obedience, through perfect obedience, they're a fool's errand because it's not possible. We can't do it. The law's job was to show us that we need saving and that we can't fix ourselves. It was never meant to fix us or save us. In this, we can see uh, the law is meant to be a, a revealer and not a savior. Meaning when you look at the law and it's still good, there's, when you advance into it and you try and do the things of the law, it's meant to reveal, oh my gosh, I can't actually do all of these things. It's to reveal to us that we need saving, that we need a savior. And again, what Paul is trying to show is, hey, there's good news. Yes, you need a savior. I sent one. Like you have a large need, but I sent a perfect savior to meet your need. When Paul writes about going up to heaven or down into the abyss in the text, he's trying to paint a picture of things that are impossible. And he's saying this, it would be just as impossible for you to save yourself through the law as it would be for you to march yourself up to heaven and drag Christ down. It'd be just as possible. Or it's just as possible for you to save yourself through the law as it would be for you to descend down into hell and defeat death when Christ died. Only an omnipotent father can, can call the son down to earth and only the power of the Holy Spirit can raise the son from the dead and only Jesus actually did these things. Jesus is the only one that descended from heaven and the only one who ascended from death. Paul wants to show you, you can't do any of that and that's okay because he sent someone who already has. He's again trying to press us to put our faith in Jesus and not our works. Paul is pointing to it's impossible for you to save yourself through sheer obedience. There's no work that you can do. There's no great task that you can complete, but the good news is there's one who's already done it for you. It's available to you. All you have to do is believe in him. And again, Israel did not want to accept or believe in Jesus. Now, I don't, I don't need that guy. I have the patriarchs. I have my family line. I have my morality. I have my goodness. Just let me have the law, and I'm going to ace it myself. He's saying you cannot do that. The central part of being saved is to transfer the hope of your salvation onto Jesus and off of yourself, away from your efforts and onto Christ's death and resurrection for you. You throw the full weight of your hope into Christ. Do I do 10% of my salvation? No. Do I do 1% of my salvation? No, I do none of it. 
I, I just believe in the one who accomplishes all of it. Paul is desperately trying to take away any idea of earning your salvation through obedience from Israel, and then now fast forward to us from us as well. Verses 9 and 10, he says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This confession with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and belief in your heart is key. Now hear me because we want to reverse engineer a little bit this. We're not called to confess with our mouth and allowed not to believe with our heart. And we're not called to believe with our heart, but never give any confession with our mouth that is visible in our life. Both elements are required, and they're not works. They're just what salvation looks like. Both need to be present in order to have actual saving faith. Our inner belief in Jesus' work and our outward showing of that belief through our life or some sort of confession through our life. An inward belief and an outward confession. Where this gets confusing over the past century or so, and especially in the church in the West, is, is it gets confusing because what has been created is really just altar calls and times of response in church. Uh, in churches all over, this has happened for, for, for at least the last hundred years or so, there's times when churches will give a time of response to the gospel. And I think this is a good and natural thing. You want people to respond. So after a, a sermon or something else, they'll give you a time to respond. People will be able to raise their hand if they want to respond. And maybe they come forward or sit in their chair where they're at. And if through their response, they'll repeat some sort of prayer after another man. And what this is going to be is their confession. And the, the heart in this is good. It's, hey, I want you to respond to the gospel. Do you want to respond to the gospel? I want to respond to the gospel. Okay, repeat this after me. They're going, okay, since you repeat it after me, that's your confession. That's good. You're, you're in. That can be a little bit of problem, though, because we need to remember the, the context that Romans is, is written in. This is the book of Romans to Rome, a place where Nero is in power and control, and his authoritarian power is vast, and it is with a heavy, heavy hand. People are forced to submit to Nero and declare out loud over and over and over that Nero was Lord. If you remember the Pharisees trying to test Jesus about who to pay taxes to, what they're doing is they're they're saying, hey, are you going to challenge Caesar? Are you going to challenge Rome for who is Lord? People all over were called to call Nero Lord. There was actually times of, of censuses that would come out and you'd have to go from all over, come in and do the census. And before you left, you had to declare, oh yeah, and Nero is Lord. He's the supreme authority over the land, and I submit to him. This happened all over Rome. So he, here's the deal. You could live in Rome. All roads lead to Rome. There's commerce, and there's, there's, a, there's a ton of stuff happening, and you could enjoy all the blessings that were in Rome and in your culture, but most likely to do that, you have to mold into the culture and confess Nero as well. Hey, enjoy. There's so much great stuff there but you're going to have to like, confess him in order to do it. So Paul's wording here that we need to confess with our mouth and believe is saying saving faith looks like faith that is so full, so real in King Jesus, that you confess Jesus is Lord in a place that largely calls Nero Lord. It, it, this, this confession is a, is a countercultural confession that, that comes out of your life. Your confession ends up showing itself in the, in the real life moving forward. So if you pledge allegiance to King Jesus, 
over everything in the moment, but he doesn't actually have your allegiance in the world, that, that kind of confession would be problem. It's a, it's a calling. Confess Jesus overall, and that confession can be costly to live out. That confession that Paul is talking about here is Jesus over your leaders, Jesus over your political power that, that, that we need to hear in the West, Jesus over your pet ideology that you love, Jesus over your denomination that you grew up in, Jesus over your comfort, over your ease, over your riches, over your job, Jesus over everything. This is this confession he's talking about. It's not just simple words. It's words that then get modeled in life. So I, I, w- I want to go back. I don't actually have a problem with, with altar calls or times of response. Like car- cards on the table. Here's the kind of chicken and the egg thing that we go through in church. We want people to respond. We want people to follow Jesus, but kind of how do you get there if they don't have a time of response? We, we don't do that all the time, but I'm, I'm actually fine with those. Especially because verse 13 says anyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. So a lot of people are just trying to give people a time to call upon the Lord. I think that is good. The only problem that has to be kind of taught or, or communicated is a one-time verbal confession by word followed by silence the rest of your life is not the type of confession he's talking about. A person who professes, or a person who professes faith that they, they don't actually possess, can, can give empty words at one point, but not actually walk them out. This calling of, of confess with your mouth. You don't have to be perfect, but our lives and our actions and our choices and our, and our future words need to, to, to match the confession that we gave or else something is off. Maybe the person needs to be discipled and they don't know what it means, or maybe they just said some words and they don't mean them. Saving faith leads to a life that is changed by the Savior and saving faith is following faith that really actually wants to follow Jesus. Again, there's tons of margin. We're going to mess up. We're going to fall on our face. We just need to be a little bit wise because people can take you through the Romans road and go, okay, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe he's true. Okay, say these words after me. Okay, I said them. You're saved. Awesome. But, but they don't actually believe. We've got to match a belief in our heart with a, a confession from our mouth that kind of gets modeled imperfectly but it gets modeled. We're just, we're, we're careful with words if they don't come from the heart and get exhibited in the life afterwards. This is what Paul's talking about. These are the things that need to happen to be saved. A belief in the heart and a confession with the mouth. So in the anatomy of salvation, Paul has covered number one, number two, and then number four. Right? He's covered election. He's covered burden and prayer. And he skipped over and he covered confession and believing, but there's a gaping hole between burden and prayer and people confessing and believing. And it's going to be evangelism. He didn't forget it. He left it out on purpose to show you how important it needed to actually be there. And he frames up four questions to show you the importance in one statement. He, he says this, well, how will they call on him who they have not believed? And what he's talking about is unbelievers. How, how are they to call upon the, the, the Lord who they have not believed in? And how are they to believe in him who they, like they actually haven't heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul covers evangelism here to make sure we know it's paramount. Notice it doesn't say, since God elects, don't worry about preaching. 
Paul's making it very simple and a clear ask of you and me. It's a plea to believers to receive. God elects. Yet we must understand that people still need to hear. Right? Those can go together. God elects, but people still need to hear. In order for the lost to be saved, former lost people need to be sent to others to preach to them. Now, hearing this, it may be easy to go, well, okay, but I'm not a preacher. Like, that's your job. That's your work. But the word rendered as preach in the original language is cariso, which means to herald, to declare, to make an announcement or to transmit news. So the word preach here isn't actually talking about sermons and pulpits. It's, talk about, it's talking about declarations in streets and, and neighborhoods and, and homes. It, it's not things that I do. It's things that, that we do. John Stott puts it this way. He says, if you take the verbs in opposite order, you'll get the point. Christ sends heralds. Heralds preach. People hear. Hearers believe. Believers call. And those who call upon the name are saved. But unless people are sent, the good news will not be announced. If the good news is not announced, no one will hear. And if no one hears, no one will believe in the gospel. If no one believes, no one will call upon the name of the Lord, and no one will be saved. Thereby, God calls former sinners to then be sent missionaries to declare and herald Jesus to lost people. Paul's point before is that true faith is confessed by the mouth and believed in the heart, right? It's, it, it's, it's confessed out in the mouth, maybe at one point that's good and right, but it's confessed later in the world as well, and it's believed in the depth of your heart. I believe that Jesus and Jesus alone saves me. It is his work and not mine. He, he's showing us this is what true faith looks like. I believe fully. It's only in him, and, and, and I confess it, maybe imperfectly, but, but I say it and I model it with my life as well. And then this part shows what obedient faith looks like. True faith, confession, and belief. Obedient faith is heralding faith, he's going to say. Charles Spurgeon says this. And understanding, he wrote this a while back. Faith cannot be washed into us by immersion. He's, he's trying to say you can, you can dunk, dunk someone in the water, call it baptism, but they ain't getting saved that way nor sprinkled upon us in christening. It is not poured onto us from a chalice, nor generated in us by a consecrated piece of bread. There is no magic about it. It comes by hearing the word of God and by that way only. This is the design of God. Yes, there are beautiful and miraculous stories of God coming to people in dreams. God can save that way. But the way that he's designed things to work most of the time is through former sinners telling people about Jesus, the truth of Jesus, and through their hearing it, the Holy Spirit works, changes their heart, and then they call upon the name of the Lord. Now, Paul's aiming not to guilt us, but to galvanize us here to be people who declare Jesus. Us. Not me, not me and Clayton, not, not, not a couple of all of us. The, the, the thing that, that I hope that you understand and that I want to get deeper in my heart is there's a beauty and a power that you just don't understand of you declaring Jesus. God can do amazing things with it. He wants to galvanize us to it because without it, people don't have the necessary ingredients to be saved. Then he references Isaiah 52 when he says, how beautiful are the feet 
of those who preach the good news. And like we think about that for a second. Feet are disgusting, right? They're not, they're not inherently like, oh, those are beautiful feet. Like maybe if your wife asks you about a, a pedicure, you're like, yeah, those are great. Feet are not great. And back then they would have been even worse. Like think of the shoes that they have. Their feet would be dirty. They'd be callous. They, whatever they're walking through on the path they're going to have all over their feet and they're probably being cut up and they're going to be nasty. Paul says those feet, dirty and nasty as they are, are beautiful. Why? Because they bring good news to people who need to hear it. Those dirty, nasty feet are beautiful because of what they symbolize. They symbolize people getting what they need in order to be saved. Beautiful are those feet because heralding is a beautiful thing. Again, why are they beautiful? Because without those feet doing the hard, nasty work of going, there's nobody's going to hear. And nobody who's going to be saved. It's a, it's a beautiful thing for people to take the name of Jesus, just wherever they're at and whatever language they have, and share it with the people around. Again, it's not beautiful are the, pe- uh, the feet of the, the pastors or, or the certain or the elite or the sure of themselves or anything like that. Or beautiful are the feet of the extroverts. No, no, no. Just beautiful are the feet to declare the good news. Why? Because without it, people won't come to know Jesus. If we back up again, we'll see that God elects out of his sovereignty, but then he has designed it to where his election shows itself through our evangelism. We can't see who's elect. And here's the best thing for you. Probably don't think about that. But when ordinary people go, and not just overseas. If you want to go overseas, hey, let's talk. Let's, let, let's find a way to get you there. But this is talking about an ordinary people, not just overseas, go into their world, their job, their neighborhood, their, their hobby places, their coffee shops with gospel intentionality to speak the truth of Jesus to those who are far off. God will use it as the means to save those who are elected. God uses the proclaimed truth of Jesus from former sinners to save people who are still sinners and rebels. Again, this is a beautiful thing. God uses former rebels to become beautiful feet, to tell the world around them about the Savior that they have found hope in. Another Spurgeon quote that I like, it also hits me deep in the soul. They're only missionaries and imposters. That's it. There's no third option. God turns his children into those who talk about their good father. That's what he means. You don't have to all go overseas. You don't have to have a seminary, or you don't have to graduate from seminary. Saved people talk about the blessing that their father has given them through Jesus. the one who came for the problem of their sin because they see their sin as big. God elects, we pray, we evangelize, the lost call upon the name of the Lord. This is the hope that we just see and be recaptured by. And there's beauty in that. God does the, God does the heavy soul lifting, right? God elects. We pray and we evangelize. Other people call upon the name of the Lord. In texts like this, it's easy to feel guilty or overwhelmed or utterly incapable. But again, that's not supposed to be the point, even as me and Clayton were praying just even before this. You don't have to be perfect at evangelism. 
The first step is to hear and accept this is true. You're telling me that just regular me is supposed to tell other people about Jesus. Okay. The first step is just to accept it as true in your heart. Then if evangelism is a struggle, pray for help. One of the best things that you could do, even as we respond in worship today, pray that the Holy Spirit will guide you with this, even if it scares you. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you courage if you feel scared to, to share Jesus. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you focus if you're too distracted. Because some of us are too scared, but some of us, we just got too many things going on, so we just can't focus. And some of us maybe pray that the Holy Spirit gives us repentance because we'd go like, hey man, if, if I were to be really honest, I'd just say like, I, I haven't heralded Jesus just because I don't care to. And even that we should wrestle with. The good news when we're scared about evangelism that we get the circle back to is it's God who elects. For those who are worried, but I don't have all the answers. Here's the beauty of election. You don't need to. You don't need to. The perfection of your words don't matter. God does. So you have the freedom to go in and speak and be like, oh, I didn't say that right. Like, we're not like, like, probably don't go say straight heresy all the time, but like, it's a childlike faith. God sent Jesus for our sin. Do you believe in, like, the, the framework, the metrics, like, pretty easy. But you get to go and speak with the freedom without worrying because it's not the perfection of your words that, that save people. God uses imperfect people to persuade others to the perfect Savior. And we won't dig too far in this, but in heralding, it is persuasion. We're really scared right now. And like the, 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 the over-acceptance of the word tolerance we're afraid to persuade, but we're called to persuade. You can do it gently, but the thing in our hearts is like, hey, Jesus, if you kind of maybe wanted to possibly, you're, you're called to persuade people, not manipulate and not hurt. But God uses imperfect people to persuade other people to follow the perfect Savior. Let, let this hopefully sink into your heart and it hopefully be helpful. The power of the gospel is that it doesn't require a professional to declare it. That's really good news. Do you get that you who doesn't feel good about yourself right now, maybe, or so often? You don't feel like you have all the answers. You don't have to. Again, you don't need a seminary degree. You don't need to be a pastor to see people find Jesus. You need the willingness to pray and declare. That's it. And that, that's like, it may be a scary task, but it's also a fairly simple task. The beauty of us saying, man, I'm gonna pray and declare. We'll see, we'll see where it lands. I'm gonna pray and declare. See, Paul has worked hard to show us the anatomy of salvation in these last two chapters. So far, the hope is that we would want to get involved in the process that he's lined, it out, lined out for us. Like Paul, it's probably easy for us to look around, though, and just see so much unbelief. It feels staggering when we look out and be like, it's overwhelming. Like, 
how do we go and declare in a, in a world that there's just so much of this unbelief? In the face of that, the hope is that we'll double down on prayer and evangelism. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to pray. And that's why we need to evangelize. The reality is that God the Father is right now wanting to save. Like, like get that, in, in your job, in your neighborhood, and where, where you spend your time, he is wanting to call rebellious men and women to come home, and he wants to make his appeal to them to come home through you. Not, not through, through me, through you. This beautiful process of calling disobedient and obstinate people who we were, to find their meaning and hope and their redemption and their salvation in Christ is something that he asks us to take part in here and now. There's never a good time to start. There's never going to be a perfect day or an easy day. Or He's just calling to us now. So if we receive these words, the only things left to do is just to decide, okay, and to go. Go to the world you live in, not in new places or extra places or Go into the world that you live in and share the hope of the nations with lost souls. Pray for people and then share with people. Here's the interesting thing in the call of burden and prayer last week. If you pray for God to save someone for a year, and they're like right here, at some point you're going to go, well, I guess I could tell them about Jesus while I'm praying too. The, the beauty is prayer filters into evangelism. Now, we may have relatives or, or some or a friend who is in a far-off space and we don't get to see them. It is, it is good and right. God, bring a brother or sister into their life who sees them regularly, who torments them with the good news of Jesus. That's fine. But the reality, if you're praying for your neighbor for a year, you're probably the one who's supposed to tell them about Jesus as well. This is what he has called us to do. I've talked to several people who increasingly go, are, are growing hungry to see God work, to see people saved. We've come through how long of, of the COVID era and all the stuff that you know about that we've been through this year and so many different things. We've gone through all of that and yet there's still in you this, I think God wants to move. And, I, and I'm really excited about that. But I think some of us are maybe on the opposite side of that paradigm. Disheartened over time that just hasn't felt fruitful. Maybe, maybe you're in the spot of like, I hear your words about evangelism. I hear you saying like you and regular people and I, I get it, but I mean, I've, I've shared and I've seen nothing. Like nothing. And, and I, in fact, I've shared Jesus and the only thing that it's done is broken relationships. I've lost friends. The best shepherding advice that I can give you into that is go, I know it hurts, but don't give up. See, many times evangelism takes years of prayer and preaching. We can, and I feel this in my heart, and I'm assuming that you can kind of connect to it. We'll, we'll for a month of time, get really jazzed about sharing, and then something won't happen in that time, so we just kind of quit. The calls just don't give up. Sometimes it's years of prayer and years of work. And then God will just shock you with his timing. 
Just because you haven't seen things go the way that you've wanted so far doesn't mean that you need to give up or that they won't work in the future. Don't give up. Chase Jesus. Pray hard and speak of him for his glory and and for our obedience and to see the kingdom of God come about more. This is our hope. Lives saved through obedient bravery. Not through perfect men and women. Not through perfect words. Not through some just massive, like, out there situation. Lives saved through just obedient bravery. I'm I'm just going to keep sticking my head down, keep praying, keep sharing, keep asking, and and hope that God does a work through it. There's two closing thoughts that that maybe you just kind of bring in front of us. Evangelism in our current cultural climate, I get it, it's scary. I get it. Here's the thing that we're going to have to wrestle with. If, if we get to the point where we want to see God do the miracle of salvation, yes, it's scary. But yes, it's also worth it. Jesus told us, hey, they killed me for this. It's probably going to run you into some problems sometimes. So, so we need to understand, like, there's not going to be a perfect moment where, where it's not scary and it's not hard. When you evangelize two people and share Jesus, you're going, the idols that you run after, the things that are your gods are wrong and you need to follow and submit to Jesus at a core level. This is a, a frustrating thing because you're calling people away from sin. So just honor and say, yes, I understand it's scary in our world right now. It's also the hope of the world that we're in. How do do you want the world to get less scary? We need more people to come to know Jesus. I, I get that it's hard in the moment that we're in. Here's the other side of where tolerance has gone out of control. There's been many studies done in the last couple of years. Here's, here's the thing that scares me about the church in the West. A lot of people now believe that to evangelize to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus is wrong or abusive or hateful. Well, I need to honor what they believe in. I need to, I need to honor like their thing and their culture. And Yes, we need to be respectful and kind, but at a base level, there's only one way to go to heaven. There's only one way to be redeemed. And so we do not want to destroy other people's cultures or other people's past or even other people's heritage. But we do want to be brave and understand that if they still follow the thing that they're following now to the furthest extent, they will never be redeemed. So in this mindset that like it's not kind to, to evangelize the people who don't believe the way that you do, is it kind to say, hey, I, I don't care what eternally happens to you? I would say that it's the kindest thing that you can do though people may not always feel like it is kind, to let someone run towards judgment and say, hey, I don't want to upset the apple cart. That's not a kindness. And God's calling us to maybe acknowledge that. It's a scary world right now to share with. The threats of cancellation are everywhere. But there's only one way. And that's a hope that I want our hearts to understand today. There's one way to God. This is what got Jesus killed. There's one way. 
And I hope that we would believe that more deeply. I'm not asking of a million things of you and me. Just the hope is we pray for a couple people and share Jesus with them. That's the hope. And see him save those who are far off that we want to be saved. This is the hope of the nations. This is the plan of God for his sovereign will to come uh, about. And again, we have to go back to the words of Paul. How will they believe in the one they haven't heard of? That's, that's your call on mine. We want to share with people in imperfect ways, from imperfect hearts and imperfect lives, the perfect Jesus, and ask that he would do wonderful and beautiful things to save the lost. That's the hope. Clayton, you can come back up. We're going to pray. And we've got, I think, four songs today. If you want to grab your communion cups, we're actually going to take together today, uh, about halfway through. Um, but we want to, in the face of this, we want to remember the elements and take in the beauty of what Jesus has done. We want the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus to be what others find their hope and their identity in and redemption in. So we'll, we'll take of that today. But friends, my deep hope is not that we will do something extravagant and over the top. It's just that we would believe that Jesus is the only way, that he was good, that he is good news, and we begin to share him, and that we'd be able to see him save. I know that there are people that you're burdened for. And even talking in MC and in other conversations, some of us are broken about people we prayed for for years and haven't seen anything work. Please don't give up. Please don't give up. God's hands are not too short to save. And just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he won't do it. Will you stand and pray with me today?